What's your story? This is Success Stories with Kendra Hall, where inspirational people come to tell their story so that you can write your own. Here's Kendra. If you have ever faced challenges, which let's be honest, who among us haven't, but the kind that leave you questioning your very identity, who you are at your core, then this is the conversation for you. Today's guest is Dave Hollis. Dave Hollis is a career coach, foster care philanthropist, former Disney executive, and the New York Times bestselling author of Get Out of Your Own Way, A Skeptic's Guide to Growth and Fulfillment. Following his exit from his 20-year career in the entertainment industry and a public divorce in 2020, the father of four documented his inspiring journey to self-discovery in his upcoming book, Built Through Courage. Dave, welcome to success. We are so excited to hear your stories. Oh, Kendra. Let's go, Kendra. I'm so excited to be here. I can't wait. It's a long time coming. And and I'll admit, I've thought for a while, like, how do you start this conversation? And so... Is any, you know, I suppose any place is as good as any other place. Let's start here with an opening question that would be difficult, I think, for anyone. I wouldn't, rec- I would not want someone to ask this question of me, but I feel like it's appropriate for this moment. And that is like, who is Dave? Hollis. Now, before you answer that, I, the reason I ask this is because I feel like a big part of, of what you've been through, of what you document in this book is all centered around, but there's a lot of it that has to do with identity and, and managing that identity and tapping in to that identity. It's been a big part of your life as of late. Um, and so I wonder, what has your identity journey been? I know you've had two big shifts, leaving the Disney career, transitioning from being married to not. Maybe start with Disney. Tell me about this. Sure. Well, it's interesting. I was asked a question two days ago to describe myself in three words. Mm -hmm. And the words I picked were work in progress in that I find myself very much in a season, and uh, this season is prolonged. I mean, it's probably been for five years now where I am every day trying to take steps toward who I am going to become. Mm -hmm. And I'm closer today than I've ever been, and yet I'm still on a journey. I am still becoming the person I will be known as at the end of my life, the person that can honor the intention that my creator had for my life when I was put on this planet. But when I was in entertainment, so I had an entertainment career you were referred to, 17 years at the end of that career, we're at the Walt Disney Company, the final seven as the head of sales. Mm. And I had, as a foundational pillar of my identity, an executive inside the company, the president of distribution, a member of the academy, relationships with talent, the things, right, that I in the beginning of my journey in entertainment, had aspired to one day sit at a table and be invited to an event and have a conversation with that human who created that amazing thing that I am in love with. And I was fortunate because, man, I had so much support and mentorship. I had the uh, the fortune of the greatest collection of intellectual property in the history of entertainment coming together in that mm-hmm. I put into theaters the Marvel, Pixar, Lucas, and Disney films, and they're just among the greatest of anything that anyone could ever work on. No question. And yet, right, so um, in this world of like identity and who I am, at the 
transition from 30 to 40, I really started asking some of these bigger existential questions of why I'd been given the gifts I'd been given and found myself not having to necessarily use them to get straight A grades on tests that I was no longer having to study for, mm. right? The, the collection of brands and the strength of leadership and the leverage that came with everything that was being the head of sales at the Walt Disney Company meant that negotiating theaters to take Star Wars and Avengers films wasn't necessarily requiring every bit of gift that existed inside of me. What a high-class problem. Dave, let me play a very, very small violin for you. But it was where I found myself, right? Yeah. And so I had to ask, what is this all for? Why, you know, like, why have I found myself in this place where I can't feel the things I thought I'd feel when I achieved the things that I was always aspiring to try and achieve? And I was in the backyard with my sons uh, right around 40. And we were playing this game that we always played where they could ask me any question. Nothing was off limits. My middle son asked, what is your greatest fear? Out of my mouth fell, not living up to my potential. Mm -hmm. And in real time, I had this recognition that I was, in fact, living into my greatest fear. Mm. I had what everyone else had suggested would make me happy. I had the status and the salary and the title and the access, and yet I didn't have a sense of fulfillment because I wasn't tapping into all of why I feel like I'd been placed on this planet. And again, like there's such privilege in being in a place where I can even acknowledge that that existed, and yet knowing that I was living into my greatest fear in that moment acted as a catalyst to make dramatic change and challenge this tenant of my identity as executive inside of entertainment and transition into entrepreneurship where the, the thought of pursuing impact, right? If I could be an accomplice in delivering impact to people, then might I more fully be tapped into my potential and the reason why I've been placed on this planet. And that was the catalyst for jumping out of the head of sales job at Disney into entrepreneurship with, at the time, Rachel to build something that I am super proud of in the Hollis company that did, in fact, have a lot of impact, but also brought a whole bunch of new things when it came to identity. And I would imagine it's such a confusing thing because, as you mentioned there, you were you were fulfilled by that, right? By that job. Like when you were first, when you first got that title or even working your way, wasn't it fulfilling for you? Wasn't it meeting all of your dreams, your highest hopes for yourself? 100%. I mean, I will say, so I had such a luxury of a journey inside of the company and that the first 11 years, I had 11 different jobs. Yeah. Seven of them, by the way, not jobs that I was necessarily hand raising interested in, but was willing as a person who'd established somewhat of a relationship of, I will say yes to become a MacGyver-esque solver for a part of the business that needs someone to throw some salve on a wound. And I was ready to jump in. I was the guy that said yes. They kept asking me to jump into new things. And so there was always a new learning curve. I was mm -hmm. often the least experienced person inside of a room where I was trying to partner with a team I was now leading. And uh, the certainly learning curve at the beginning of my, at 36, taking on the global head of sales job at the Walt Disney Company, where my left and right hand, the head of domestic and international, had been there for 30 and 32 years when wow. I sat down at the table. Um, yeah. Did they think that they were more deserving? Did I have to find ways to partner? Of course. But 
goodness was it fulfilling at the beginning because of how steep that learning curve was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, right, three years in, the acquisition of, uh, well, uh, two years in, the acquisition of Pixar takes place, four years in, the acquisition of Lucas. And because of now just all of this momentum that is happening where Pixar, sorry, Pixar, Marvel, and Lucas having come into the fold has created this leverage flip. My learning curve has now been beaten back a little bit. The relationship equity of four years of laps around have now established something of a rapport with the Kevin Feige's and Kathy Kennedy's and Steven Spielberg's. And now the job is, you know, four years in, not as fulfilling, not as challenging. And there were three more years of time where, again, you know, like it was just like, okay, now, now what's next? And so the next for me was truly a, a contest to push against the conventional thinking of what other people might think of me doing something that unconventionally challenged the value that they'd placed on the role. And I yeah. probably stayed in the job, to be honest, a couple years longer in retrospect than I should have because of the worry of what other people might think of me leaving a job that others don't. And when I did leave, it was, you know, only after I left that I realized, oh, no one was ever actually paying attention or thinking about any of the things that I was doing. There's freedom now in understanding that nobody's watching. Do what you need to, to tap into the things that are going to drive your passion or make you feel like you're closer to that reason, your purpose for being here. I, uh, there's so much too. There's, there's so much happening right here. And one of the things that I'm taking away is, is that the, the, you know, there's fear with entering, you know, you're, you're talking about being the youngest and you've got these people who on either side of you have been doing the job as long as you've been alive and you're all these different things. And each one of those uh, points that you alluded to, you could say are, there's a lot of fear in each one of them, but it was the fear itself that made it fulfilling because you were facing. And it was only when the job, when the fear was gone, when the job got easy, when it was a, that it started to feel really wrong. And, and I, this is a big realization for me, as I'm hearing you say this, is I often feel crazy when just when things start to even out, in life, that's when I feel the urge to to change things up to and and I feel like because we've all been told like strive for stability, strive for for things to be easy. And what you're really saying here is don't like not don't, but the the hardness, the fear is what makes it fulfilling, right? Abs absolutely. I mean, there there's such uh, an attraction to comfort. And I, for the longest time, had certainty as my North Star. The more that I felt like I could control variables, which I now have perfect clarity, I have no control over anything, the more that I thought that I could create stability and comfort and safety, then I assumed that I would then, and only then, feel a sense of fulfillment. And the inverse was true. It was the actual exact opposite, that as soon as I was too comfortable. As soon as I wasn't being pushed because of the discomfort of the choppiness of the waves that exist outside your safe harbor, mm -hmm. that's the only place where growth happens. And I, it took really falling into a pretty serious funk for me to appreciate that you are either growing or dying. Mm -hmm. It is binary, right? Mm -hmm. There is no treading water. There is no just staying even. You are either growing or dying. And if you put yourself in a place where comfort or certainty are the things that you value most, you're doing it at the expense of growth. And in the absence of growth, 
Uh, you're dying, but you're also guaranteeing that you're not going to feel a sense of fulfillment. Yeah. And, and I, and I, I loved what you said there because I was going to ask you about this is what other people were thinking. And I think that's always a part of our, whether we want to admit it or not, or admit it outwardly, or even admit it to ourselves that what other people are thinking and whoever those other people may be, they may be colleagues, they may be neighbors, they may be people at your church, they may be your father, whoever it is, what they are thinking. And ultimately, they're not really necessarily even thinking about you. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is so many of the people who were in my life, I think legitimately had love for me. I loved them, craved love from them. And their advice was often framed as love, but it was really their fear Mm -hmm. disguised as love, right? Mm -hmm. So they would tell me, here's the reason why you should stick with where you're at, or here's the risk in doing this thing that you want to do, or here's why it's crazy to, are you sure you don't want to? And it was represented as love, but it was truly fear. And so like their limiting belief was something that they were trying to sell to me and have me believe as my truth. And I, for a long time, I did. I mean, I remember walking into the Walt Disney Company after I've made the decision, we're going to make this crazy move. I now have to let the company know I was under contract and had to ask Alan Horn and Bob Iger, if they would let me out of my contract. Hey, I want to go do this thing. It's important. It's not going to make sense to you, but it's the thing I need. It's the Mm. thing my family needs. It's the thing I need. And I can remember Alan Horn. He's just one of the greatest men on the planet. And he's lived and worked in the entertainment business for a hundred years. His concern was palpable. He was like, I know the kind of stability that I can create for you and your family for decades. Mm. And I don't know that you can create that same stability for yourself somewhere else. Are you sure you don't want what I can give you? Right. And man, I appreciate it. Lots of love. There's a lot of love in that that sentence. Yeah. Yeah. What I appreciated with Bob, he's just one of the best leaders I've ever, ever been around. But I walked into his office and he asked the simplest question. And it was, is there something I can do that would change your mind? Mm. Is your, is your mind made up? And I said, you know what? My mind is made up. This is something I've thought a ton about, prayed a ton about. I need to do this. And he said, well, great. Sit down and tell me about it because I now want to celebrate this decision that you've made. I am not, this is not a negotiation. I just want to support my friend who's making a decision to go do something new with his life. And I was like, God, of all the responses, because I had so much fear of what it was going to be like to have to walk in and have this conversation with this person I admired so much. That was the exact kind of response that I would have hoped for. And it was a blessing because it let me leave as much as it was still scary to now go do this thing. It allowed at least let me leave feeling like I'd I'd left on a, on a good note. You know, it's interesting that you share that story. And I love that you do because it's, you get a chance to see glimpses of, you know, we all have respect for Bob Iger and to get to see him in that way that we don't get to see him. I think about uh, Pyle Kadakia, who's been on the cover of Success. And we had an interview. She founded ClassPass and had a similar um, interaction with one of her bosses at the firm when she walked in and said, I'm leaving because I'm starting this other thing. And he called her into her office and there was so much fear and ended up writing a check to her to be an investor in the company. And I think even though this isn't necessarily a leadership conversation, for those of you who are leaders of organizations and you have people working for you who, who are superstars, that's why you want them on your team. 
take a, make sure you're listening to these stories from you, Dave, and, and you're higher up from Pyle and her higher up of how you treat exceptional people, even as they're leaving your harbor. So I think that's, I'm going to remember that story. I appreciate that. So one. good. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you, you, you said this, you know, it was such a privilege to be able to make that, that choice to have this experience. So sometimes our identity crises are almost self-induced, right? You're like, I'm leaving this big job. Let's do this. Sometimes we don't get, we're not the ones that get to choose that this, you know, we're not the instigators of that. I have a feeling you've experienced both, right? Oh, yes. Tell me about this. Is there a difference? Is there, do they feel, do they feel different when you have made a choice to throw yourself into the spiral of an identity crisis? And when the choice has been put as you've been not given the choice, you've been told. Yeah. You know, so I, I, I say in the book, you know, change is something that you choose or change is something that chooses you. Yes. I do very much relate to this idea that, hey, I chose to reinvent who I was and what I did identity wise in the departure from Disney into entrepreneurship. The decision to have my marriage end was something that was not necessarily my choice and yet was still something that really, hey, rug pull out now to everything that I thought my future might look like, the place that I might work, the vision for what five and 10 years down the road might look like, uh, I was handed in many ways a blank piece of paper, which is equal parts terrifying and exhilarating, right? More terrifying mm. at the beginning, exhilarating as time goes by. But there was something in the decision to leave that felt a little bit more like, hey, I am going to make my, I'm going to make my way. I'm going to create something in this. I knew what we were going to get going to do. And at least having a vision for what I was going to do at the beginning made it just a little bit easier, even if it was still fueled by, there was a ton of fear and imposter yeah. syndrome and how are we going to figure this out? And what if we don't get it right? And are they still watching and all of that? At the very, very beginning of my divorce, I definitely did not have the sense of confidence because I lacked imagination. Mm. Right. Like my vision for what the future was going to look like had been so connected to the way I thought I'd always be in partnership with Rachel and support her vision and do work with her as a part of this company that we'd created. And when that was obviously not going to be the case, I really struggled to cast a vision. I had a hard time writing on that blank piece of paper at the beginning because of it not being a thing that I'd really given much thought to. Mm. And what I had to do was really create a relationship with my fear, right? Like really get to know what is it that I am afraid of that is keeping me from being able to cast as vivid of an imagination, as vivid a picture of what is possible for my life now that most of the things that were not you know, that were possible or not possible any longer. Mm -hmm. And in the book, I have this reference to all of these people that I admire. I went and found all these people that I admire who have created great things. And there was a constant theme that every one of them had hard stuff that they had to persevere through. And among them, I have a reference to Lazarus in the Bible, like dude had to die to be brought back to life. <laughs> if you're not familiar, right? Right. Yes. And, and, and in that, like I, I had to acknowledge that there were some very, very important things in my life that had to die so that I might be brought back to life. My identity, my ego, my sense of normalcy, almost everything that I thought I knew would be there forever was now not. And that death in a crazy way was freedom mm. because it ended up in the ashes giving me this permission to cast any vision 
in a way that I might be able to reconnect now with why I was actually on this planet and what chasing after my dreams or sailing off of my map might look like in the absence of an identity that previously my primary identity was husband to Rachel. And so now it's okay. If you are not that, who are you? And man, the beauty of the last 18 months has been redefining who I am in the absence of who I was. And so, you know, there's this Tyler Durden quote. I love it. It's not until this Tyler Durden from Fight Club. I know everyone quotes Tyler Durden, but it's not until you lose everything that you're free to do anything. Right. And that was the case for me. Right. Like so much of what I thought was going to exist in the future was now not a possibility, which meant anything was possible. I just had to find a way to be courageous enough to cast the vision, confront the fear and take little steps every day toward it until it became normal. Yeah, I what I what I want to highlight here as you're talking about this is for anyone who is listening, who is going through some sort of identity shift, whether it's one that you chose or one that chose you, um, the presence of fear in all of it and regardless and, and that willingness to to sit in it and kind of kind of welcome it in a in a curious like, I wonder how because, of course, Dave, you know, my my whole life is storytelling. So almost taking a moment and being like, well, I wonder what this story is going to be now, right? But to also hear, and I've heard you say it very clearly, that it wasn't pretty right from the get-go. It, it was, and, and I would imagine even after leaving Disney, it was a little, right? It wasn't all sunshine and rainbows the first, the first no. day. Can, can we talk about just that little bit of that in-between period? So if anybody is in the, sh in the shift of identity, they can hear your story and feel good about the, the progress they're making in their own. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you a little about both. I can remember my last day at the Walt Disney Company was May 30th of 2018. The two-week later Father's Day morning was the first Father's Day in almost a decade that I wasn't working on a Pixar movie in... Spain, <laughs> where there was oh, this wow. cinema, there was a Cine Europe thing that happened every year and the same weekend on Father's Day. And so I was always getting up in another country, talking to the press about how great Pixar once again was at the box office. And now I am sitting on the floor of my den with my four children, actually celebrating Father's Day. And as much as my identity as a father is such an important one to me, I still was processing some grief over mm. not being someone who was needed in the capacity I'd previously been needed to talk to the press about Incredibles 2. Right. Like when you realize how replaceable you are, when you leave something and they pick right up, set more records, are having no, like no one was calling to make sure that I was helping someone figure out how to tell people about success. Mm. Nope, they were fine. And that recognition of um, my significance in that space was now gone because I'd pulled myself away from it. That was hard. That was hard at the beginning. And it wasn't like, oh, immediately we had uh, success, though there was a, a pretty steep curve with what we created at the Hollis Company, but there was so much trial and error at the beginning. And I'd come out of an environment where I had so deep a team of subject matter experts that right. they had a sense for smoke before anything turned into fire. Right. And so rarely as a, I mean, I, there were thousands of people on my team in 72 countries, like rarely was I even presented with fire. 
I was presented with, oh yeah, we saw some, we like smelled some smoke. We took smelled care it. of it. You right? didn't we even smelled see it. it. Yeah. We didn't yeah. see it. We just, we smelled it. We took care of it. It wasn't an issue. They preemptively were solving problems. And then immediately inside of this new entrepreneurial space, we were having problems. We were in fires every four hours, right? <laughs> we were having fires every four hours. And at the very beginning of this uh, transition, I took very personally my inability to preempt fires. Like I uh, thought there was something wrong with me as a leader for not being able to smell smoke. Like why can't I smell the smoke? Like I had people for years that just smelled smoke and they put it out before it turned into fire and here we've got fires every four hours. And we had this opportunity probably like six months in where we were backstage with John Maxwell and we're kind of explaining the phenomenon of fire frequency. <laughs> and he, like in a classic Maxwellian way, says, well, you can either have a business that doesn't have any problems, or you can not be a small business entrepreneur, right? Like you, like you can either be someone who doesn't have to deal with fire, or you can be a entrepreneur in a small business, but you can't, like, it's one or the other. You, you don't unfortunately get a choice to just not have to deal with fires. And bizarrely, like the sage permission to just yeah. be okay with the frequency of fires and see them as this opportunity to learn and get better and find better people to work in the business or to think differently about how strategically we were approaching problem solving that was still creating fire. And then, oh wait, if we solve it this way, there's no fire. There's just not even smoke. Um, what a blessing, what a gift. In the aftermath of divorce, like for me, it was really about changing the time horizon of what I was casting a vision for because of the way that my imagination was compromised by fear at the beginning. Yeah. And so as a person who'd always been much more a long-term vision caster, here's the five year from now version of me. Here's what I wear. Here's what I drive. Here's, I was like in 90 days, I would like to be a person who does X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And in the like most simplistic way, the thing I had to focus on most was my health. Yeah. And not like just physical health, but health is defined by my physical, spiritual, mental, emotional, and relational health. And mm -hmm. I tried to make a list of two or three things in each of those health categories that I needed specifically in this season to get me from where I was to where I'd hoped to be 90 days in the future. Mm -hmm. And for some of them, it was like, what I need to get 30 days into the future. Mm -hmm. And then there were some days where it was like, here's what I need for my health to get from here to lunch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Here's, right now. Here's the next right decision that I can make to get me from where I am in this grief or where I am in this identity crisis or where I, to whatever, right? And the, the, the span of time just elongated as time went by. So yeah. just over time, it got a little bit easier to handle things and start casting longer vision. And again, that balance of terrifying and exhilarating started tipping more and more every day to exhilarating. It was like, oh, I made the list of my fears. Turns out 80% of these fears are ridiculous. I can now <laughs> make peace with these fears. I got right. into therapy and the, the therapy I did... I don't know that this is a therapy podcast, but I did this therapy called Internal Family Systems that was all about me as self making a relationship with my emotions, making a, a relationship with my thoughts. If you've read the book, Untethered Soul, it's kind of like an untethered soul-esque, you're not the voice in your head, you're the observer of the voice. Yep. It, if it sounds woo-woo, just go with me for a second. It's okay, I'm telling just you, go, I'm with changed you. My, changed my entire life. But now when I experienced anxiety, 
Rather than wanting to grab a drink or spiraling because it felt overwhelming, I made a relationship with my anxiety. I named it, which sounds even weirder, but I named it Grant. No, I named Grant? it Clark. My fear Clark. is Grant. I, Clark. I named it Clark. So <laughs> I, I named it. I named it Clark, and I said to my my anxiety, "Hey, Clark, what are you, what are you doing here? Why have yeah. you presented yourself?" Right. And in the therapy, they teach you that hey, uh, each of these parts, these feelings, they exist because they believe themselves to be doing their job to help you. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, well, anxiety sucks, but he thinks he's here to help. What, what Clark could you possibly be here to help me with? And oftentimes it would be that he showed up to point out a part of my life where there was still so much ambiguity that had not yet had a plan put against it, that if I could, because of him having presented himself, draw my attention to it, mm-hmm. put, put a plan together, Clark feels satisfied. He goes ahead and head, heads on home. I actually get to be somewhat grateful now for him having emerged to help me follow that trail of breadcrumbs to creating a plan. And now like, that example with my anxiety can be applied as much to my fear or my anger or my whatever emotion were to present itself. Why are you here? Let's have a conversation. I'm not sad. I'm the observer of my sadness. I'm not anxious. I'm the observer of my anxiety. And that, that work, man, it just like transformed the way that I approached the process of getting through the process. Right. I mean, I I think about, I don't know if you've ever heard of this amazing movie called Inside Out. Oh, I know this movie. And it is totally (laughs) that. No, no, no. It's so good. It feels feels like that. And it feels like that in a way. And like, what a useful tool. I hope you have thanked your your therapist many, many times over. I am buying him about one session at a time. Yes. There that, you is go. My, yeah. that is my thank you. <laughs> so you you talk a lot um, in the book about maps and harbors. I want to start first with this concept of maps, right? Yep. Um, so, so because they haven't read the book yet, what... What is a map in our life and why does it matter? Well, I mean, the conceit of the book at like its most basic level is just this simple idea that every single one of you who is listening in real time was created with very deliberate, intentional purpose in mind, right? That you were given wiring, the way that your mind processes things, the way that you feel things, the way that you love, the way that you have had a set of experiences All of them make you a unique, one of one, limited edition. And with that intentional design, we have an opportunity, I would call it a mandate, to do everything we can every day to honor the intention of our creator. You were put here for purpose. And you don't have to believe in the creator that I believe in, but you were created for a reason. And that reason is something that we should every single day, me, Dave, as work in progress, Dave, is every day working to, to the best of my ability, honor the intention of why I've been placed on this planet. When you get somewhat of a handle on your why, your reason, your purpose, right? Now you can put that on a map and actually have something that you are aiming for. I describe it in the book sometimes as a lighthouse on the opposite side of a shore. I've actually got a visual map drawn inside the book that helps you kind of work through all of the things that you have to in trying to assume this identity of who you were created to be. But if you don't know what you're sailing toward, you're guaranteed you're never gonna get there. And so the idea of understanding that you were put here with purpose in mind, 
identifying it. There's work that we have in the book and some classes that exist as uh, thank you for ordering the book kind of supplements that help mm -hmm. you identify what is that purpose in your life. When you get there, you get to put that on the opposite side of the shore and then make the list of things. Developing some self-awareness of where you are. You've got the vision of where you're going. Now, what is it going to take to actually get there? When you have the map, you can create a plan. And with that plan, do the work to every single day. Take a step closer to it. Now, I know that you had, and this kind of goes into the identity, and I think we've all, we've all had this happen, is sometimes we end up maybe like picking up somebody else's map or, uh, you know, you have someone who is, you're working on a map together and they're like, no, no, wh what if you did, so what has been your experience with really protecting the map, your map that is right for you and your purpose? And, and when has that gone astray? And what can people, again, in that same situation do when they realize they're holding someone else's map or, or someone had made all these edits that maybe they approved at one point, but now they're like obsolete? Yeah. I mean, the first thing is uh, just creating some awareness of the fact that it may in fact be your plight, the thing that you've maybe accidentally found yourself following, not your calling, but the calling of someone else, not your mission, but the wishes of your family of origin or the definition of what society suggests good girls or real men do. Um, if you, if you find yourself feeling less fulfilled it may in fact be because you're satisfying the conditions of someone else's definition of what is good for you or right for you and not necessarily listening to your intuition, the whisper of God, your knowing, whatever. Like there's plenty of words for it, but you there, that, there's that pang inside of you that just keeps saying like, man, you're passionate for this. Why, why aren't you spending more time with this? Because you know you're good at it and, and you love it. That like ignoring that noise is usually because of the influence of someone else who has um, suggested that you ought to do something else. For me, I really was at this place when I was leaving the Walt Disney Company where I knew I needed to make a change. I knew impact was the thing that I was super interested in. I, at the time, I mean, I'd been supportive of Rachel and her business before having made the move and the opportunity to work together was something that felt exciting in part because I'd been witness to what felt like magic in a bottle and seeing some of what she was doing in the event space and, and certainly in having read um, the first book that she, you know, the first big breakout book in Girl, Wash Your Face. And so my decision to jump into business with her was one, just like pride as a husband and my interest mm -hmm. in being supportive. But it wasn't until we were about a year in that I felt my own stir that was like, man, like, is this like, is this work as much as man, it is having effect on other people. And it is, I'm, I'm, I'm a cheerleader for Rachel today as much as ever. And I will be, I'll be, I'll be a cheerleader first for my, my entire life. The idea though, that maybe there was some other reason that I'd been given gifts that weren't totally being tapped into and used was something that started nagging on me. Mm -hmm. And I happened to have like this great God moment where I got on an airplane and I was sat next to Dan Rather. Yeah. And just to give you a glimpse into how nerdy I was growing up, Dan Rather was my childhood hero. Mm -hmm. Like clearly I didn't see a girl without clothes on until I was very old, but <laughs> I, I loved 
I loved the news. I loved this man. And I wanted to be Dan Rather when I got older. And I sat next to him and we talked on a plane. I mean, I never talk to people for the most part because I want to respect people. This uh, this one, I was just like, I am sorry in advance. We're going to talk for this entire flight, sir, if you are willing to (laughs) indulge me. And he was more than willing. But I got off the plane and I had this feeling inside of me that I hadn't felt since I was doing the local, <laughs> the local news at Pepperdine where I was a newscaster. Like uh, This was the thing that I wanted to be. I wanted to be a reporter. I wanted to be someone that could use my ability to speak and teach and storytell. And as much as I did have a stint as a DJ in college and I had that little experience as a TV reporter, I got into the entertainment business thinking that I would still satisfy some of what was going to make me feel those things of who I wanted to be before I became who I'd become. And I never really got back to that. And so in a crazy way, my observation out of this, I mean, a magic moment with Dan Rather was... Quit second guessing if you have what it takes to write a book. Quit second guessing if you have what it takes to host a podcast. Quit second guessing if you can be a coach. You're not going to be great at it at first. You're certainly not going to be as prolific uh, a seller of books as Rachel has been. You're probably going to, um, you know, not draw as big an audience or you're not going to, you know, get it all right at first. But this is something that just keeps kind of beating in your heart. This is who you wanted to be before you became who you'd become. Mm. Listen to that voice. And what I realized in that was, yeah, I, I decided to leave Disney and follow this map, this vision of a company that could be and the work that we were doing. And it was Rachel's vision. Yeah. And man, she's like the one of the greatest dreamers I've ever met. And yet it wasn't my map. And I'm super, again, proud of the work that we did together. And I think it's great that she has had the impact on people that she has. And yet, when it came to feeling like I was living into my purpose, that meticulous design that was exclusive to me as a limited edition one of one, I wasn't doing it. And so for anyone who's listening, right, like it doesn't take anything away from the pride you can feel for being supportive of someone else's vision. Mm -hmm. But if you're sailing off of someone's map, someone else's map. I'm not sure that you're going to necessarily feel that connection to purpose and honor the intention of your creator in a way that you might, if you were willing to cultivate the courage to go do some things that you've maybe never done before in spaces that make you feel uncomfortable and challenge your imposter syndrome or challenge your insecurities and suck at it at first until you get a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better, so that you can live into the reason why we put on this planet. Uh, I, I mean, I think I think about that. I'm tracing it all back, thinking about that leaving and how leaving the Walt Disney, you know, company and everything that you were leaving. But at the same time, you were almost kind of like, yes, it was un, it was unknown, but you had there was some knowing in in Rachel's ability and your ability together. Then, like that map almost became, in a way, a security. Yeah, it you can it was. see like that a security blanket in and of itself, and how you know it's this is this this is a side note. But as I'm listening to this and and always watching you and and even back with with Rachel, my husband and I worked together. Uh, He left his, and it's on a much different scale, but he left his father's company where he was, you know, high up in his father's company um, because what I had was, was taking off and, and he has skills and talents and all of the things that I don't necessarily have. And so it was like this perfect 
coming together of two people to create this thing that was was me, was story, you know, was meons and all the different. And it it was about three years, and it became clear kind of to both of us that he had done the same thing, like taken yeah. my map. And then there is, there is, there's, there's intensity in the relationship professionally. And when you have a very forward female in the behind the scenes, man, you know, and all of these. And so we've had to, in a very similar way, we're now, as we're moving forward, untangling to, to move him out. And so that he, because he has other, I mean, I mentioned at the top of this podcast, we're going through a home remodel. Like he bought this fixer upper. It just so happens we're fixer upper and get right now as we're sitting here. But, but to see him flourish in by following his map. Um, but it was difficult. It was, it was very confusing to, at first it was great. And then it was confused. Why isn't this quite working? And now to see, so this is true for anyone, whether it's husband and wife or whatever the, when you're, when you have two maps that seem to fit so perfectly together, but why isn't it quite working? Maybe it's just one map and it's time to peel yours off the back of it or I don't know how to. Yeah. I, I, put this in the book, so I'm comfortable talking about it. The conversation around divorce actually started with a, uh, a simple but huge question from Rachel. And that was, do you think that you can be the man that God created you to be married to me? Mm. Right? So, um, Big question, right? And and at the time where my primary identity is husband to Rachel, my floor fell out from under me because I was like, right. well, wait, what do you what what do you speak of? And um, you know, like my grief and the processing of divorce and transition was, I wish that the answer were yes, mm-hmm. and yet I am eighteen months removed in the best shape of my life, and and not phys- I mean physically yes, but like in mental and emotional and relational and just uh, there's a healthiness. And there's a healthiness in our dynamic that is different, obviously, than it was, but is better also than it was. And so uh, I hope that for you know most people, it doesn't take having a relationship come to an end. But I do think asking that kind of a question, mm-hmm. should you find yourself in a partnership, can you be the person that you were created to be? inside of this business with me? Can you be the person you were in this situation with me, assuming this identity? Because I would have, at the expense of fully standing in, actualizing my purpose on this planet, lived inside of that for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And I don't love all of the things that transition out of marriage comes with, but I do have a gratitude for the way that there is there is so much in that exhilarating stuff that now has been drawn on my blank piece of paper that is possible because of this decision and it's mm-hmm. it doesn't make it again any less difficult to have to go through and yet if you can at least spend time with the question it might give you permission or freedom to explore your own map. It might it might give you permission to explore moving outside of a company in the way that you're doing it with your husband so that yeah. you can honor the gifts that he's been given and maintain a healthy relationship between the two of you. 
Totally. It's so much better to be like, well, except for when, you know, I'm recording a podcast and the guys are like stapling insulation. But at the same time, it's like, oh, it's fun to be excited about what he's doing over there. And he can be excited about what I'm doing over here if we hadn't untangled our maps. Um, And I feel like all of this, you would have been in that space forever. And I feel like that space, you gave it a name and it, and it shows up a lot in the book, which is that the harbor, right? The, the place where we, um, where our ship is safe. And so I thought, I mean, this conversation has gone by so fast and there's so much more to say, but I really love this, um, this idea of knowing where you are, of understanding your harbor. So I wanted to wanted to make sure you shared some of your thoughts on that with, with everyone listening. Yeah. I mean, the Harbor is it, the allure to the Harbor and, and kind of like picking at why it is that we find ourselves so attracted to what we know or what we've been inside of or make the maintenance of the status quo is, is the place to start because it is not, it doesn't make you weird to like, like, comfort. It doesn't make you weird to not want to have to push yourself into something that makes you face your fears. But if you can at least identify why you're there in the first place, maybe it lets you start breaking it apart so that it's not held on a pedestal in the way that maybe it has been in the past. I have the tattoo on my arm. It's like such a a cornerstone of everything that my life change in the last few years has been about. But it says, a ship in harbor is safe but that's not what ships were built for. (laughs) And I got it as this reminder more than anything to me on the days when I worry about my ability to handle the choppiness of the waters that exist outside of my safe Harbor that I was built for this. And my message to anyone who will listen and the message certainly through the entire book is that you are built to handle the things that exist outside of the Harbor. I've just, I've described in the book too, that the Harbor is surrounded on all sides by fear. Mm -hmm. Fear is like a moat. There is no way to leave the harbor and get to what lives on the other side of fear, which is learning and growth, without first making your way through your fear. There's no drawbridge. There's no detour. It's go through fear. And the reason why I talk about being built through courage is that you have to decide to find your courage, cultivate your courage, build your courage so that you're able to, you're not going to dismantle all of your fear, but so that you can face your fears head on, push through those fears and in part because of them, get into a learning zone, get into a growth zone that will have you feeling that sense of fulfillment that you're longing for, have you feeling closer to that purpose that you've been placed on this planet for. Uh, the, the, The harbor is something that society, that that everything, all the things that have any kind of control whatsoever into why we do the things we do tends to have us coming back to play it small, play it safe, stay in your lane, stay in your role. And yet that's not why you were put here. You were put Mm -hmm. here for this very specific deliberate reason. And your challenge is to be courageous enough to believe that you have what it takes to leave the harbor to have the confidence to believe that you can handle facing those fears, the conceit that it's only in facing them that you're going to become this version of who you're put here to become and to go. (laughs) You know, it's, I was at spin class today, which now I'm regretting because I still feel like I'm sweating from the spin class and the spin instructor 
said, you know, it sounds counterintuitive, but when you sense fear, run towards it. Now, what he was talking about is like your fear of vomiting in front of all the other people who were at the spin class, but it's that same, it does. It seems so counterintuitive, but as you have shown time and time again, uh, approaching those fears, facing those fears, or even sometimes where it wasn't like your intention, uh, naming them and taking a good look at them and how that has served you. Um, so Dave, I asked you at the beginning and I didn't let you answer, like, who is Dave Hollis? What, what is your identity? We talked about some of the identities that you've held in the past, but I feel like a, a good place to wrap up is what's next for you? Who are you now? Who are you becoming? Uh, and, and what else can we look forward to from Dave Hollis? Well, I'm a lot of things. I like, the, I like the idea of being a lot of things. I mean, I'm a father of these four kids first. Uh, they're good kids and they are going to be the legacy of this life that I lead. I'm an author. I'm excited that this book, Built Through Courage, is coming out here October 26th. Um, there's a 90-day challenge that we're doing in real time for anyone who pre-orders the book. You get a Finding Your Why course. You get a Resilience and Mindset course. But you also get jumped into a community that's got more than 5,000 people in free coaching for 13 weeks at my website, MrDaveHollis.com. I am a children's book author, which is a first-time thing that's going to be happening here in February. So uh, I have done this thing trying to distill these personal development ideas that I am uh, working through adults with to my small children. And one of them, Noah, is four. Mm. We've had this fun thing called Tea Time. And so uh, I've adapted our Tea Time conversations from her bedroom into a children's book that comes out on February 22nd. I'm excited about that. Uh, and I do, I, as you said at the beginning, I do, I do coaching inside of a cool community called Growth Day. I'm going to do some additional coaching direct from my, uh, from my website. And I have uh, just announced my first attempt at something that scares me, which is throwing a live event for men. So I will, uh, <gasps> wow. the first, yeah, first weekend in February, the second through the fourth here in Austin, Texas, congruent conference is happening for just a couple hundred people, a little pilot, if you will. But the idea that uh, if we're able to create integrity between our actions and this vision of who we'd hope to become, that's when we feel the best about ourselves when we're by ourselves. And uh, and so we're going to try and uh, have three days worth of fun with some men here in Austin. After having had many events for women, uh, I'm going to try my, try my <laughs> yeah. hand at doing some things for men. Ah, oh, that's, that's, that's awesome. I've, I've got a few people I can send your way. Let's well, go. Dave, this has been an absolute pleasure. Everyone, please make sure to go check out the book. It releases October 26th, correct? Uh, and, and I don't think there's anything better than pre-ordering a book. In addition to all the great bonuses you get, the book shows up on your doorstep and you don't even realize you did it for yourself. So thank you so much for sharing your stories here, David. It's been a pleasure and we can't wait to see what stories are ahead. Uh, thank you, Kendra. Appreciate you. Appreciate you, audience. This has been Success Stories with Kendra Hall. If you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe, drop us a review, and tell your friends. If you'd like to hear more shows like this one, go to success.com slash podcasts.